This morning, I want you to imagine that you're not here in a parking lot in Cerritos. I want you to imagine that you are living in the ancient city of Rome. The year is AD 60, and it's been about 20 years or so since this man named Yeshua, Jesus, was executed at the hands of the state in Jerusalem, about a thousand miles away. And you are not ethnically Jewish, but I want you to imagine that you have been drawn into this community, this Jewish sect, who has been exploring this idea that perhaps this man, Yeshua, was raised from the dead, that he claimed to be the son of God, that he claimed to be the fulfillment of ancient scriptures, and that this man who was raised from the dead revealed himself to hundreds of people. And that as a result, communities just like yours in this city of Rome were springing up all over the ancient world. And you have begun to ask yourself, wrestle with these questions of what is true, what is real. As a Roman citizen who is not ethnically Jewish, you've begun to ask the question, what if the emperor is not God? What if this pantheon of Roman gods and goddesses are just human superstitions? Now, you've been drawn into this community because you have found it interesting, intriguing, that this Jewish sect would welcome you, a non-Jew, in. And you have been struck by their warmth, by the sense of family, as they have unpacked their scriptures, their holy writings for you, so that you might understand. Now, I want you to imagine that one day, your little community in this city of Rome receives this letter, this letter written by a teacher named Paul, whom you have heard of, because he has been traveling throughout the ancient world, spreading this idea that this man, Yeshua, has come to change the world. And as this letter gets read in front of your little community, you are on the edge of your seat. You are listening intently. And so this morning, I invite you to stand with me as we read a portion of this letter. So if you would stand out of reverence for what eventually would become revered as the very words of God. And again, if you're uh, listening on the live stream and you have your Bibles, we are in Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Verse 17. 
Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray together. God, we come before you recognizing that we stand here in faith, choosing to believe some pretty amazing claims about who you are and the way that you have called us to live. So God, as we unpack your scriptures, we invite your Holy Spirit this morning that you would instruct us, you would convict us, you would encourage us, you would heal us. And we pray this to your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, You may have a seat. Now, when I look at the New Testament, when I look at the Christian teachings, in general, in my crude understanding of the world, I tend to see uh, these teachings kind of in two broad categories. One is kind of this universal moral ethic, things that most people uh, from all faiths, from all cultures, generally consider good and true. And then there's this other category that I would consider being uniquely and distinctly Christian. And I think that Paul here is touching on something that is distinctly Christian, something that you will likely not find outside of the Christian faith. And it is this idea that we see here starting in verse 14, where Paul says, Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. It's this idea of intentionally loving and serving the enemy, whoever that might be. And I find this fascinating because he, he cites Jesus almost verbatim. Uh, When we look at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. And so it's fascinating, I think, that Jesus uses this imagery of family, this welcoming in to a new culture, a new ethic. He does something similar in Luke chapter 6 as he gives a a very similar sermon. Luke chapter 6, verse 27. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. And then skipping down to Verse 36, Jesus says, be merciful, just as your father is merciful. So again, here's this family ethic where Jesus says, this is what the father is like. Therefore, this is what our family is called to be. So be merciful because God the father is merciful. And so as we begin to unpack this, I I do want to just kind of bring it into a personal Uh, onto a personal level, uh, kind of before we go any further. 
Um, because a lot of us might not think necessarily that we have enemies. We, think, we might think, well, we have, you know, I, I live at peace with, with, with most people. Uh, so I do want to ask you to begin considering as we unpack these scriptures, who is your enemy? Who is your enemy? And if you think about it, it can be anywhere from the micro level to the macro. So on the micro level, it could be that annoying coworker. Uh, it could be uh, this good friend who you're actually quite competitive with, who when, when they fail or they stumble, there's just a little bit of rejoicing in your heart. Could be a blood relative. When we expand a little bit, we can think about people that we don't even know. We can think about groups of people, perhaps someone with a different religious ideology, a different political ideology, perhaps from a different nation. Perhaps it's someone who roots for a different sports team than you do. This idea of the other, I think, is significant to ask. It's also interesting that as we unpack this, as we begin to see this idea through the lens of the kingdom, through this new ethic that Jesus invites us into, it's really a very similar question that the Pharisees asked Jesus when they asked, who is my neighbor? It's kind of the flip side of that as we consider who are the people around us and how are we to see them? How are we to engage them? So back to this scenario in Rome. Again, I want you to imagine that you're living in, in the first century. And imagine yourself a few years after receiving this letter from the Apostle Paul. The year is now 64 AD, and the summer is hot. The temperatures are rising, and this devastating fire breaks out in the city. It burns for over a week, and it decimates the city, destroys residences, businesses, civic infrastructure, places of worship, storehouses of food. But thankfully, the only place in the city that does not burn, for whatever reason, is where the Jews and the Christians happen to live. So your home is spared. Your community is spared. And at the time, the emperor who is ruling is a man named Nero. And if you know anything about history, Nero was a flamboyant, egotistical, lustful man. He loved pleasure. He claimed to be an artist, although the, the artist uh, did not associate with him. Uh, a lot of his critics thought he was mentally ill, that he was mad because he was so self-absorbed. And as Nero began to rebuild after the fire, as he began to build himself a, a bigger, grander palace, his critics began to spread rumors that perhaps Nero started this fire. And his approval rating plummeted. And so in order to maintain power and save face, Nero needed a scapegoat. He needed somebody to blame. And so when he realized that the only portion of the city is where the Christians happen to live, he said, let's blame the Christians. Let's bring them out. Let's hunt them down. Let's mock them. Let's torture them. Let's execute them. And so Nero would have these big public spectacles where he would bring in these Christians and he would torture them publicly. He would tie them up, dress them in furs, and have wild dogs devour them. All the while, he would run around dressed up in costume, 
as the protagonist of this play, really all for his ego, uh, to serve his purposes. Uh, historians call this the Neronian persecution, and it lasted for several years. In fact, many historians believe that there's a good chance that Paul and Peter were both executed under this persecution. That as a Roman citizen, Paul was likely beheaded. And according to church tradition, Peter was crucified upside down because he didn't believe himself worthy to be crucified the same way that Jesus was crucified. And so when, when we look at Paul's instructions in, in this letter uh, on what it means to, to love the enemy, Paul's life and his death exemplify just how serious he was about this idea of, of loving the other, of loving the enemy. In fact, I think it follows the exact same precedent that Jesus sets. That when Jesus was, was hanging on the cross, as he was being tortured and humiliated publicly, he cries out in prayer, Father, forgive them. Forgive them because they do not understand what they're doing. They are blinded, blinded by their hate, by their rage, by their self-righteousness, and they do not understand what they're doing. So, Father, forgive them. And as Jesus suffered, he knew that he was suffering on behalf of the ones who were torturing him. And so, as we unpack this as a church today, I think it's important to realize that this is central to who we are as followers of Jesus. Now, I do believe that the beautiful thing about the kingdom of God is one that it's always contextual, that it, Jesus and the Spirit will always meet us where we're at. And then number two, I think it's really important to note that the kingdom is, is both wide and deep on one hand, but it's also small and micro on the other hand. And so I, I think for most of us, we can say that we are glad that we don't live in a country with a dictator who hates Christians and wants to hunt them down. Um, and, and I think that we can, we can thank the Lord for that. But at the same time, the kingdom is about what goes on in, in our hearts. And in many ways, humanity has not changed over the generations. And so as we consider, who, who is my enemy? The invitation of the kingdom is to look inside of ourselves and basically ask ourselves, where is their hate? Where is there perhaps unhealthy competition within my soul? And what does it look like to surrender this to the Lord? To intentionally love those who are unlovable or who I do not naturally find myself inclined to love. Going back to our passage, there's this kind of logic that, that I want to hit on that, that Paul takes us on. He says in verse 17, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, and he quotes Deuteronomy here, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. And so it's important to know that when it comes to justice, 
when it comes to balancing out um, the scales of justice, Paul's saying it's really not our responsibility, that God's wrath will take care of that in his timing and according to his purposes. And we see this throughout history. On the other hand, when we look at the cross, the very purpose of Jesus sacrificing his life, it's to do just this. It's, it's to balance the scales of justice. It's that he pays the price on our behalf. And then Paul ends his argument by quoting from Proverbs. And the Proverbs, almost verbatim, read, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will keep burning coals on his head. And then he closes with, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so the beauty of this kingdom ethic, this way of life, is that it breaks the cycle of re revenge and retribution that we see pretty much throughout human history. This tit for tat, this you wrong me, I'm going to wrong you, and, and then some. Because Jesus says, I, I will take the hit. I, I will break this cycle, and I will create a new culture, a new society. It's a way that he creates um, what the Bible calls shalom, the sense of peace, the sense of, of wholeness. And I do want to offer a, a caveat. You know, we, we live in a culture where we use words um, like, like, like abuse and trauma. And, and I think it's important. I think that's a very important conversation. And so when we look at the idea of the other or the enemy through that lens, I think it's important uh, that you have a measure of wisdom when you think about what it means for, for us to love our enemies. That if you have been abused or wronged, whether that be physically, verbally, emotionally, perhaps sexually, perhaps spiritually, I think it's really important to know that to love the other doesn't necessarily mean that you reconcile doesn't necessarily mean that uh, you jump toward forgiveness even. It doesn't mean that you need to be physically present with your abuser. But like I said, the kingdom is, is both micro and macro. So as we consider this idea of the abuser, it, it starts with the heart. It starts with, with prayer. This inv inviting of the spirit to say, God, teach me to to trust you, to, to trust your ways, and to perhaps let go uh, of some of this hate, uh, to, to let go of, of some of this ugliness within my own soul. And the beautiful thing about the kingdom is that what glorifies the king is also good for us. That as we learn to love the other, we experience this, this healing. And I do understand and want to recognize that this is challenging, that although this is a distinctive of Christianity, it doesn't mean that it's easy. And so I'm encouraged by what Paul writes in verse 11 of chapter 12. And I want to close with this. Paul writes, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. And there's sort of these, these three elements to this exhortation. He says, never be lacking in zeal. In other words, there's this human agency, this discipline, this human responsibility that we have to be passionate, to keep this connection 
with the spirit. And then he says, keep your spiritual fervor. Some theologians believe that this is not just um, your human spirit, but this is the Holy Spirit welling up within us. So there's this partnership that we have with human agency, our responsibility, combined with tapping into the power of the spirit, which, by the way, if, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit's in you. And I think it's worth noting that, that this is something for us to remind ourselves of. Is the Holy Spirit in us? What, what is he doing here? What, what does that mean for me? And then lastly, there is a directionality to this partnership. It's not just to make us feel good. It's not just to gratify or fulfill us. It's to serve the king, to serve the kingdom. That there is a, a purpose to this partnership. There's a purpose to learning to love the other, learning to love the enemy, that it's to bring the king glory and to further God's kingdom. So would you pray with me? God, it is humbling to consider the depth and the width of your legacy to consider the men and women who have gone before us and Jesus to consider you on the cross your willingness and your desire to serve those who persecute you who curse you who hate you and so we ask that your spirit would infuse our community God that you would teach us you would instruct us you would compel us you would inspire us to live out this kingdom ethic. We ask that you would supernaturally empower us to be this. That we would ask both questions. Lord, that we would ask, who is our enemy? That we may love them. But that we may also ask, who is my neighbor? That I may love them. And ultimately, Jesus, we thank you that you have welcomed us in while we were your enemy while we were far off. I pray that you would remind our souls of this. So Jesus, we thank you. We praise you. Amen.